Thanks for downloading this podcast from the University of Portsmouth. I'm John Worsey, and every episode of this series brings you world-changing ideas and stories from our researchers. Today in Life Solved, I'm talking to Dr. Wendy Sims-Scooten about her wide-ranging research work to better represent and protect vulnerable people. By listening to anybody who is in a situation where they're disadvantaged, marginalised, vulnerable, you actually get to learn about their situation and you also get to see a different side of the story. Dr. Sim Scoton is passionate about seeking out and hearing from marginalised voices. The key thing that motivates me is, is to make the world, and that sounds simplistic, but to make the world a better world for everybody and to be inclusive in, in the way we approach things. We'll hear how her work has led her to delve into history and talk to hundreds of people to understand why unconscious bias in our institutions can leave some communities more vulnerable. I've done a number of studies with members from ethnic minority communities and I've interviewed them. It has been quite an eye-opener because, of course, as a white person, it's also about getting to know people from a different culture and why, you know, certain things happen when it comes to racism, how is it perceived, uh, what can we do to change these things. And critically, we'll hear how she's bringing people together to create change and a fairer, safer society. Dr. Wendy Sims-Scouten is an Associate Professor in Childhood Studies in the School of Education and Sociology at the University of Portsmouth. I keep coming across those children who consistently miss out on support. Uh, children, for example, who are in care, care leavers, or children who are perceived as, as you know, their behaviour is too bad, to, you know, they're beyond help. And that sort of got me into looking into mental health perceptions you know, historic mental health perceptions and current perceptions around mental health and well-being in children. Her studies span a broad spectrum of the areas that make up and can influence childhood experiences, from well-being to education and sociology to psychology and history. She works with charities in the UK and abroad, as well as with Portsmouth City Council, to put research into action. When it comes to practices around children, there are a number of things that could improve, such as um, multidisciplinary practices, uh, teamwork. As an accredited chartered psychologist, Wendy's focus has been on the mental health of children. I was fascinated by some of the experiences of children when it comes to early trauma, attachment, school experiences such as bullying. I lived in Amsterdam at that point and I was awarded some funding to do research around children's care in Greece and Finland. So I lived in both countries for about six months and found out a lot about global childhood, interdisciplinary practices around childhood and well-being in different countries in Europe. So following this, I embarked on a PhD in psychology. I looked at early care, again, daycare practices to support children and slowly but surely got into research with a focus on the psychology of childhood, uh, specifically in relation to, for example, bullying, uh, well-being in childhood, uh, supporting disadvantaged and marginalised groups such as children in care and care leavers. Safeguarding and well-being have always been at the heart of Wendy's research, but she became more curious about children and trauma when she was working in an adult mental health unit in the Netherlands. Wendy says that challenging historical biases and institutionalised blind spots has helped her uncover barriers to helping vulnerable people today. 
I was lucky enough to get funding from the Wellcome Trust to look at historic archives of children who were taken into care in this country in the Victorian times by the Children's Society, which were called the Ways and Stray Society at the time, and comparing this with current practices. And again, I saw that certain practices with certain very vulnerable children, they are sort of the same now as they were in the past. So we still have this narrative that although we like to talk about mental health, we like to support vulnerable children, there is always this group of children who are perceived as beyond help, too difficult, too complex, uh, their behavior is all wrong and they're bad children. And those are the children that I'm most passionate about when it comes to supporting them. And I'm also interested in changing practices around those children. So improving the knowledge of psychologists, social workers, when it comes to engaging with those children, but also being aware of their own perceptions. Yes. Sometimes you've worked in practice for a really long time, you almost become a little bit institutionalized. And, and sometimes it's really hard to see the sort of maybe even unconscious bias you have towards certain children and families. And I like to change that. It's not necessarily good enough to say that practitioners sometimes could be better at doing mm. practice. Sometimes they simply don't have the means. So sure. if, if there are funding cuts, if there are not enough resources, if there are not enough practitioners, or if there's not enough training, then practitioners also become vulnerable groups themselves because they have to work with the limited means they have. Wendy's historic research found that in records dated between 1881 and 1918, a shocking 46% of case notes suggested children were, in quotation marks, beyond help. The concept of giving up on a vulnerable child because of their behaviour after trauma is in itself deeply sad. But more concerning was what Wendy found in her research between 2015 and 2018 when she interviewed vulnerable care leavers. About 50% said they were beyond help. The only way to change it is by centralizing their voices. It is the narrative that you can see in their case files because it, the heartbreaking thing is that the case files that I analyzed, the historic case files, there were lots of letters from those children. There were letters talking about their experiences and asking for somebody to understand them and to, to, to see what was going on with them. So their voices are there. And of course, in the, in the current situation, again, it's about centralizing the voices of those people, which I've done and it has been quite empowering because by listening to young people, by listening to anybody who is in a situation where they're disadvantaged, marginalized, vulnerable, you actually get to learn about their situation and you also get to see a different side of the story. So one of the care leavers, for example, I interviewed in Portsmouth, and he was, I think, in his early 20s, and he explained how he felt that Big Brother was watching him. He had been in care all his life, uh, children's homes, foster care, and now he was a father. And he felt that social services were looking at him because they were thinking, well, you've been in care, so there's no way you're going to be a good dad. So he felt that he didn't have a voice. So again, it's about centralizing their voices and feeding it back to to practitioners through training, different sessions, workshops. And, and that's made a difference because there's a number of things that I've done either in Portsmouth, abroad, for example, I've, I've done some work in Egypt, um, working with people in, in Canada. It's about changing practices and creating awareness of, of, of what particular children need and, and also where practice goes wrong. When Wendy talks about centralizing voices, she aims to hear individual experiences and prioritize those in approaches to caregiving. 
By seeing the person at the heart of the experience, we can better relate to and address their vulnerabilities. Wendy says that an understanding of different communities and cultures should all be a part of the way care and safeguarding are approached by institutions. Members from ethnic minority communities may have different needs, uh, may have different cultural values, may have different ways of expressing themselves. So all of these things need to be taken into account. And it's, it's simple things. For example, I was working in a school where a mixed race girl had experienced severe bullying. Because of that, her behavior had escalated and the school had excluded her. So I got involved. I did a number of training sessions with the teachers because it turned out they had not had any diversity inclusive practice training. So together with my, the chair of the Racial Equality Council and, and a ethnic minority representative from the police, we did some training in the school, which was quite exciting. And we learned quite a lot about lack of understanding things that, that, that you know, bullying, racist bullying, how that's being perceived by people. All of that needs to be discussed. And other things, uh, touching somebody who, somebody's hair is quite a common practice. Uh, you know, a child who has got Afro hair, it seems to be quite tempting for some people to touch their hair. That can be quite upsetting. It can be quite personal. And again, there is sometimes a need to explain to teachers and practitioners that, no, it's not good enough, it's not appropriate to touch somebody's hair. And then sometimes the response from teachers will be, yeah, but they only touch her hair because they like her. But it's still not appropriate. It's still So there's certain things, certain practices that need to be discussed and, and, and changed because there is this unconscious bias or lack of understanding. Wendy thinks the multidisciplinary nature of mental health and well-being means that when services are stretched, individual practitioners sometimes don't have all the resources they need to fully deal with an individual's issues at an early stage. I wanted to understand more about why it was so important to intervene as soon as possible in potentially traumatic situations. What sort of ways does that kind of trauma in childhood manifest itself in later years? Yeah, the sort of general sense is when it comes to trauma, mental health, mental health issues, generally when the child has experienced trauma, you start to see the more serious mental health issues from age 14 onwards, which could be a whole complex range of issues, depression, anxiety, sometimes diagnosed, sometimes undiagnosed, uh, which again can be a bit tricky because diagnosing children teenagers is quite hard and sometimes a little bit hit and miss mm. and, and it's also the, the, the sense of not being able to to work or, or you know hold a job or, or stick to education and again you can see this in, in certain behaviors as well because if you've experienced trauma in your life whether it's trauma through uh, the trauma of your parents you know, because your parent has been in the care system and has had a tricky life, or whether it's trauma because of, of, of something you've been exposed to. I mean, children even have trauma from being bullied. Bullying is quite extreme. It can have long-lasting mental health implications. So you learn certain forms of, of dealing with this. And there is quite a lot of interesting research around the work by Michael Unger, who is a Canadian professor, is quite interesting on this front. The notion that if you've had trauma, then your way of dealing with this could be perceived as inadequate. But it still is a way of, of showing resilience. Mm. But it could be referred to as disordered resilience. And as such, this child may be perceived as, as not very well behaved. But it may simply be the only way for them to survive. So they are surviving, they're coping by showing certain types of behaviours that may not necessarily be perceived as appropriate. But to them, it's a way of coping. It's a coping mechanism. So... It's also, again, how we perceive resilience. 
resilience can be disordered, but it could be the only way that that person can cope. Yes. So how does Wendy think we should be approaching a new intervention for vulnerable young people? She leads the MICE Hub, the Mental Health and Childhood Education Hub, that organises events and creates a platform for conversation between government, local governments, councils, charities and academics on these issues. You tend to organise an event which is very kindly facilitated at the university and paid for by the university, which is lovely. And we then meet people who invite us to, to come to their practice and do training, give talks. And so from that perspective, I've been able to link up not just with the council in Portsmouth, but also other councils, charities, the Children's Society, for example, which is a national children's charity which operates across the UK, racial equality councils from across the UK. And I was also contacted by Kibble Care and Education Centre, which is a large residential centre for children with behavioural issues in Scotland. So it's that sort of thing where the work is promoted through our events and through the university, through links with the media, and, and we then make those links with policy and practice. This has since led Wendy to giving talks internationally in places such as Egypt, and Indonesia. Her passionate work for the UK Racial Equality Council became ever more poignant when the COVID-19 pandemic caused schools to close and many support services to be cut off in 2020. Through the Racial Equality Council, we got in touch with a number of children from ethnic minority communities, some of them living in quite severe poverty. So we helped them with food vouchers and so on. But what we also found that certain practices around those children uh, were quite tricky. Just to give you an example, that particular girl who I mentioned earlier on, mixed race girl who had racist bullying at school, she was excluded from the school. We did a lot of sessions at her school, you know, to basically train teachers when it comes to understanding cultural diversity and inclusive practice. And she was ready to go back to school when COVID-19 hit. And because of her situation living in poverty, she needed to, to basically go to school to get her free school lunch because that was still available even during COVID-19. Yes. But she was too scared because of the police presence. Because, of course, early on in the lockdown, there, there were quite a lot of rules about you're not allowed to go out, you're not allowed to do certain things. So there was a lot of fear, especially in, in ethnic minority communities, about going outside, about getting their food about being stopped by the police because we know that a large percentage of especially black children get stopped and searched by the police regularly, too regularly. And so we, we did sessions again with the police, the school, and we managed to, to make sure that she could go to school safely to pick up her free dinner, free school lunch, without feeling too intimidated by potential police presence. So we, we do a lot of sessions and training around this across the country and just to basically open up the discussion around what is difference, what is cultural bias, what is unconscious bias, and is, is it fair to say it's unconscious bias or, or are people being racist? And what sort of historical factors play a role here as well? And again, this is, of course, not just the UK, it's, it's across the world. So these are the base discussions that need to be opened up. And again, I tend to centralise voices there. I've done a number of studies with members from ethnic minority communities and I've interviewed them. It has been quite an eye-opener because, of course, as a white person, it, it's also about getting to know people from a different culture and why certain things happen when it comes to racism, how is it perceived, what can we do to change these things? And and it's very rewarding. It's I, I'm really quite passionate about being part of the Racial Equality Council and also being able to, to do something around 
white privilege, which is something that is a thing and it needs to change. Wendy's work during the pandemic is now leading her to look at marginalised voices from women in Indonesia. Her hope is that by talking to people from deprived communities in Jakarta and Surabaya, she can help develop methods of supporting casual and temporary workers to remain safe and healthy during lockdown conditions. It's just been quite a privilege working with academics over there who um, have got immense experience working with vulnerable groups. And uh, so we, there's quite a lot of learning I've done engaging with yes. my colleagues in Indonesia. And it's lovely that they're interested in my framework. I'm... I'm basically, I'm a critical realist and I apply specific framework to understanding health and co-production and and how people make sense of their own health by looking at their experiences, but also looking at what is actually available in society to help them and by looking at, at, at sort of particular causal factors. So we're going to sort of mix up my model with their model and expertise and hope to come up with a new model. So it's quite exciting. Wendy's open collaborations and her approach of getting into the world and talking to real people to understand individual experiences is a critical step towards supporting vulnerable people with complex needs. You can find out more about Dr. Sim Skelton's work at our research portal online. Just go to port.ac.uk forward slash research. Next time on Life Solved, we'll be challenging taboo and asking how bereavement and grief impact today's society. Giving them the language to be able to express the emotions they're feeling at that moment in time is really important. We don't support children enough in developing that barometer. You can subscribe to this podcast on your favourite app to never miss an episode. And do share this podcast with a friend if you've enjoyed it. You can reach us on social media using the hashtag LifeSolved.